Some of you may uh, already know this. Uh, Molly and I have a dog, and he's just kind of a mutt. Don't ask us what he is. We have no clue. We got him from a shelter, and he kind of acts like he's from a shelter, uh, but we love him all the same. Uh, but if you know about our dog, you may know uh, that his name is Augie, which I kind of sometimes get a little embarrassed about because it sounds like we just kind of were like, oh, doggy, Augie, ah, you know. But, but actually, it's much more embarrassing than that uh, because I'm a bit of a nerd, and uh, I actually in, said, you know, let's name him Augustine after the 4th century theologian, and we'll call him Augie, you see, A-U-G-G-I-E. It's a very, very nice name. I, I say all that just so that I can quote Augustine this morning at the start of the sermon. He says this, Should you ask me, what is the first thing in religion? I should reply, the first, second, and third thing therein is humility. You know, Augustine was a well-respected theologian. In fact, besides the Apostle Paul, there may not be a Christian theologian in history who's had as much impact about what the church has believed for not just a couple of years or decades, centuries. Actually, you know, millennia. And he says that the first thing in religion should be the first, second, and third, humility. Uh, this morning, as we look at Psalm 131, we see it as a psalm uh, that, that leads us to humility. And we'll see that this morning, humility leads to rest in the Lord's presence. So the humble person, as we see in verse 1 here, rejects three things. Now, when you look at verse 1, if you have an English standard version of the Bible, which is what we read from on Sundays, uh, you may be thinking that you have no clue what's going on. You know, this is, this is the bad thing sometimes about more literal word-for-word -word translations. I, I'm a fan of literal word-for-word -word translations most of the time. I, I think they're very helpful. One of the things that's helpful about them is if you read a passage, typically if there's a word repeated in that passage, they'll translate it, translate it with the same word. That's really good if you're reading Scripture and you're wanting to see patterns present themselves, if you're wanting to see, okay, he's still playing on the same idea. You know, when you get to less literal, more thought-for-thought -thought translations, they'll, they'll do a little bit more interpreting. They may change what that word is throughout the passage to several different things to get a little bit more nuance, which also is a very helpful thing. And, and, and so I don't know that we should just be picky and choosy. We should maybe have one main translation we prefer, but every now and then we need some help. I think this is one of those passages where I need some help. I look at verse 1 and it says, my heart is not lifted up. What is that supposed to mean? I mean, really, my heart is not lifted up? Well, okay, maybe, maybe it's just saying that it's below my head and not above it. What is, what is the point here? Well, it's an idiom, right? And, and without more into help, we may not know what it means. I like the Christian Standard Bible. It's a good middle-of-the-road translation. And it says here, my heart is not proud. That's pretty simple now, isn't it? My heart is not proud. We can understand that. It then says, my eyes, instead of saying my eyes are not raised too high, like the English Standard does, the Christian Standard says, my eyes are not haughty. Which, for some people, that's still a hard time, and you have to Google what haughty means. But 
generally still gives us a better idea of what this passage might be about. So we see in verse 1 these three things. My heart is not lifted up. My eyes are not raised too high. I do not occupy myself with things too great or too marvelous for me. What we see is that the humble person rejects pride, arrogance, and selfish ambition. Now, the psalm is interesting because it says it's of David. Maybe it's written by David. Now, if you know anything about David's life, uh, you may not think of him all the time as a very humble person. In fact, he did some prideful things. But maybe this psalm was written at the beginning of his earlier life when he was just a shepherd or when he had just become, uh, started to become king and he, he felt like he was being humble. Maybe it came later in his life. I think, if I was just guessing, it feels more like it comes later in his life, but I have nothing to base that on other than a feeling. That this is someone who has gone through the trials and tribulations that come through a prideful heart and has come out on the other side humbled. C.S. Lewis, I'm going to quote C.S. Lewis a few times in this sermon, and I apologize, but he's good, and you should just go read C.S. Lewis. If you would all go read C.S. Lewis, maybe I wouldn't have to preach on... I'm joking, I'm joking. C.S. Lewis, he says this, There is one vice of which no man in the world is free, which everyone in the world loathes when he sees it in someone else, and of which hardly any people, except Christians, ever imagine they are guilty themselves. There is no fault which makes a man more unpopular, and no fault which we are more unconscious of in ourselves. And the more we have it ourselves, the more we dislike it in others. The vice I am talking of is pride or self-conceit. And the virtue opposed of it in Christian morals is called humility. According to Christian teachers, the essential vice, the utmost evil is pride. Unchastity, anger, greed, drunkenness, and all that are mere flea bites in comparison. It was through pride that the devil became the devil. Pride leads to every other vice. It is the complete anti-God state of mind. Well, if that won't make you humble. See, pride is, really, if we we're trying to define it, just thinking of ourselves greater than we are. There's also a second component, though. It's not just thinking of ourselves greater than we are. It's wanting other people to view us as greater than we are. And so pride is a terrible thing. It, pride is lying to ourselves and lying to others about how things actually are. And pride was at the root of the original temptation. We see this, he says, it's, the, it's pride that made the devil the devil. It's pride, uh, Satan wanting, looking at God, wanting to be God. It's him in the garden tempting the first man and woman, saying that if they disobey God, they will actually be like him. It's pride that leads us to lead a rebellion against Almighty God. It's pride. You know, it's a unique sin, too, in a few different ways. But in one respect, it's competitive. It's always competitive. You don't just have pride on your own. It's always pride in comparison. So imagine this. You can be greedy on your own. You can say, I want more money, I want more money, I want more money. And at some point, you have as much money as you want, or you just continually always want more. But you don't necessarily have to be greedy in comparison to someone else. 
lust. You know, you don't lust after someone because you're trying to outlust someone else, right? It's just, it's just sin. You just do it on your own. But pride is different because pride always divides. It always competes. Such that the person who always wants more money and is always more greedy because of someone else, at the root of that isn't greed. At the root of that is pride. Thus that the person who, who wants to be uh, promiscuous and conquer many different people, it's not just lust, it's pride. And so pride can actually take these other sins that are not competitive, competitive in and of themselves and it can actually make them worse. It can actually make them prolong. It can actually exacerbate them. It can actually make them far worse for yourself and others. And so pride is at the root of many sins. It's not always the beginning of sin, but at many times it finds itself at the root of them. And not only that, as it comes in and divides and, and competes, it's interesting for this reason, and this is what I think should scare us all very much. I don't say that lightly is that pride can make a good thing a very bad thing. C.S. Lewis uh, was speaking of pride in the life of a religious person, and he said this, The devil is perfectly content to see you becoming chaste and brave and self-controlled, provided all the time he is setting up in you the dictatorship of pride. If you read your Bible every day so you can go to Sunday school and talk about how you read the Bible every day, there's pride. If you pray, or if you claim to pray so that you can look better, it's pride. If you come to church every Sunday, not because you want to be there, not out of some sense of obligation, but because you know if you're not there, there are people in the church who are going to think of you a little differently because you missed church one Sunday, that's not loyalty to God. That's pride. And so even the best things we do, being chaste, being brave, being self-controlled, can be soured and turned against God by the state of heart in which we do them, if we do them with pride. And so as we even think in our religious practices in our devotion to God, we think we're getting closer to Him. All the while, pride being at the root of it leads us further and further away. So that's a good positive thing. Uh, so if we'll just stand up and sing, I'm joking, please don't stand up and start singing. There's not even a, there's not even a song for you to sing. But it's not just pride, it's also the appearance of pride. You know what's funny is pride wants you, you want, uh, pride is partially caused not by yourself, but because you want people to see you as better. You know, someone doesn't advance their own agendas for the sake of pride and keep it to themselves. For the most part, if, you, if you're seeking pride and power and all those things, you kind of want people to know. It doesn't do you a whole lot of good for people not to know, because that's kind of, in some ways, the whole point. But what's funny is, if you've ever known someone who's prideful... If you've ever known someone who's arrogant, you've probably known it very quickly, haven't you? In the verse, at the second part of verse 1, it says, my eyes are not raised too high. So it's not just internally pride, but it is outwardly arrogance. Pride, arrogance is like when pride is in your heart and you put on your clothes and walk out the door, you're wearing arrogance. 
Okay, when you walk through your neighborhood, when you go to the workplace, when you go to school, when you go to church even, what you're wearing is arrogance. And, and you know what? Arrogance, arrogance is like wearing uh, clothes that you left in the washer for too long. Have you ever done that? And you take them out and they're kind of soured. You go, I can't wear this. This smells terrible. Arrogance is like doing that and then wearing it like going on a hike in the middle of summer up in the Smokies and then coming home and leaving it on the floor for a couple of weeks where the dog can mess around with it, and then putting that on and going to church. They're going to smell it on you. They're going to see it on you. Immediately you're going to walk through the door, everyone's heads are going to turn, but it won't be a good thing at all. And they'll see someone who is arrogant. You know, here's, the, here's another thing to be afraid of. If you have never had the experience of walking in a room and going, oh, there's someone arrogant in here, it may just be you walking in the room. But here we have pride on display. But you know what? It, it can also be very subtle. You know, there are some people, fewer, but, but some, who are very arrogant, and almost nobody knows it. So much so that sometimes you think, am I the only person to see this in this person? Maybe, maybe at your workplace, uh, you've had to interview people for jobs, Maybe, maybe at, at school you had to be a part of deciding who got on a team or something, and you were just convinced, this person is not a team player, this person is not going to fit in well here because they're arrogant. They're just full of themselves, and they have nothing to be full of. And yet everyone else is like, this is the one. This is the perfect person. We're so satisfied. We couldn't do better. You're kind of pushing back. I don't know about this. No, this one is the right one. This is the one. So there's times that arrogance can be hidden a little bit too. And, uh, and I know if you have a story like that, there came a day when you were proven right, or else the story would be different, wouldn't it? Yeah. And then there's another element to pride, how pride affects what we want, and that is selfish ambition. At the end of verse 1, David is saying, I do not occupy myself with things too great and too marvelous for me. What, what things are too great or too marvelous? He's talking about having a selfish ambition. He's saying he doesn't have a selfish ambition. Uh, wanting things that are beyond ourselves. Not really knowing who we are and aiming too high. You know everyone says reach for the stars. That's not what it's talking about. Actually, what's confusing about this is ambition can be a very good thing. Ambition on, and on its own is a very good thing. In fact, as someone who's younger, I wish more of my peers had a little bit more ambition that they wanted more with their life, that they had more direction in what they were seeking. Uh, ambition can be a very good thing, especially when it's aimed at the right kind of desires. Selfish ambition gets off on the wrong foot. Selfish ambition is wanting things, not, not because you're trying to do some good, but because you're trying to do some good simply for yourself. You know, I think that ambition is so rare these days that when someone graduates high school and is going to college or they graduate college and they're going into their career and you talk to them, okay, what do you want? We are just so thankful that a kid knows what they want that we'll just affirm anything and they'll say, oh, well, I'm, I'm going to go to Harvard or MIT. Uh, I'm going I'm to go into this kind of engineering, uh, petroleum engineering or, or something. And, and they give you all the stuff they're doing and you're like, this is amazing. This kid has a plan. It's amazing in this day and age to see a young person with a plan like that. And so we just say, that's amazing, you know, God bless you, great. You know, maybe sometimes we should stop and ask them, why? Why? Why do you want to go to Harvard? Why do you want to go to MIT? Why do you want to go to UT? 
you know, sometimes even good little church kids can have selfish ambitions. And just the fact that they have any ambitions doesn't mean we need to just get on board. It it may very well be that the kid who was raised in church, who wants to go to MIT, isn't going there because they have a plan to do amazing work for God's kingdom, which really should be the reason behind all of our ambitions. It may just be that they want to be able to graduate and say, I went to MIT and I got through it so that they can have a nice degree on their wall, so they can be respected by their peers, so they can get a nice job, so they can make a lot of money. That's just selfish ambition. The humble person rejects all these things. The humble person rejects pride and how pride changes how they look to others, arrogance. It changes their ambitions. It takes them away from selfish ambition. Pride and its symptoms are so bad, not only because they are the starting point for which we see the fall of man and the fall of the angels. Part of the reason pride is so bad is because it undermines the very gospel itself. It undermines the fact that we are not justified by works of the law. It undermines the fact that we are not saved by our own efforts, by our own abilities. And pride says to ourselves, we are good enough. Actually, we're better than good enough. And so the whole gospel, the belief of justification by faith alone, is undermined by the vice of pride. Unless you think I'm speaking to the choir, not only our culture, but many cultures have rejected humility for the sake of pride. I I know it goes without saying, but I'll say it anyway, that, you know, our entire country celebrates an entire month for the thing. And not only that, if you go back to ancient philosophers who were seeking in wisdom to, to be moral, even Aristotle, all the way back then, hundreds of years before Jesus, was saying that pride wasn't a vice. And so in cultures across the world and across time, Pride has sometimes been seen as a good thing, and humility as a bad thing. I said uh, not too long ago that uh, to to some people that humility might be the most distinctly Christian virtue. Of course, actually, I didn't say it to a few people. I posted it on Facebook, which meant I got a bunch of comments of people arguing with me why it might not be the most distinctly Christian virtue. They said, what about love? What about the... I'm not saying it's the most foundational, necessarily. I'm not saying it's, it's the greatest, necessarily, although I don't know that there is a greatest virtue in and of itself. I was simply saying that in a world in which humility is sometimes seen as a weakness, the fact that Christianity sees it at the, as the very thing that brings us strength shows that it is distinctly Christian. And in a culture that is moving away from Christ and Christianity, it is moving away from humility. So why be humble? Well, humility is at the very center of the gospel, and the humble person can rest in the Lord's presence. Look at verse 2. I just love this verse. In in a time in which we're so distracted and and so, uh, uh, you know, we struggle with so much stress and anxiety and different things, look at verse 2. But I have calmed and quieted my soul like a weaned child with its mother, like a weaned child is my soul within me. Our soul, our very selves. Wouldn't it be nice if we could calm and quiet our soul, if we could rest in the presence of the Lord? 
And the humble can do that. The humble can do that. Uh, The Baptist evangelist F.B. Meyer said, I used to think that God's gifts were on shelves, one above another, and the taller that we grow, the easier we can reach them. Now, I find that God's gifts are on shelves, and the lower we stoop, the more we get. We aren't crawling and clamoring and trying to to get on our tippy toes to reach God's gifts. In fact, we have to lower ourselves to gain God's gifts. And, And no gift that God gives us is greater than God himself. God's holy, loving presence is his greatest gift to us. And too many, too many Christians, and too many Christians in name only, want the gifts that God gives rather than the giver himself. And yet we are called in a world that values pride to humble ourselves that we may enter into the presence of the Lord and be calmed and quieted. And we do not do it for selfish reasons. It says, like a weaned child with its mother is my soul within me. Weaned children aren't going to their mother for nourishment and food like they once were as infants. Weaned children have no reason to go to their mother except that they want to be in the presence of their mother where they are nurtured and cared and protected for. And so it is with David here in this psalm saying that like a weaned child with its mother is his soul in the presence of the Lord. Calmed and quieted. He's not there to get something from God. He's there to get God. You know, I'll I'll pause here and say it's an interesting thing. You know, the Bible uses uh, the masculine pronoun for God. And I think that's important because it's the language the Bible uses, and I think we ought to use the language the Bible uses instead of stuff we make up on our own when it gives us something. Likewise, the first two persons of the Trinity are distinguished by Father and by son. So I think all of that's important, but we can't overextend that as if God had a gender. Other than in the incarnate person of Jesus Christ, God has no gender. God has no body for which we could find a gender. And so, in the Old Testament especially, there are metaphors for God that are feminine, and here is one of them. Like a child with its mother. And we're not saying that God is confused, We're just saying that God isn't a human like us. It's important that we remember that God isn't like us in every respect. We are made in his image, yes, but he is distinct. And one of those distinctions is although we can go up and down this room and know woman, man, woman, man, woman, man, we can't do the same with God. There is God. He defies those kinds of categories. That was just a side note on theology I thought would be worth bringing up. So when we're thinking about the Lord's presence, what does it feel like to be in the Lord's presence? Well, in this verse, we get a very clear idea. The Lord's presence is one of calm. It is one of calm. And and in a chaotic world, that sounds pretty good right now, doesn't it? And I'm not just talking about our culture at large. I'm talking about your lives. I, I know the greatest myth that exists for a lot of people is that retirement is all a big rest. In fact, I know for a lot of you, you you might say you're even busier now that you're retired. I know Betty Wiley hops on a plane like every other day to go somewhere. Isn't that right? And so some of you are, are very busy, even when you work or with your children or with your families or with 
uh, your, your retirement and your enjoyment and, and being in, involved in nonprofits and being involved in church. You're very busy people. Wouldn't it be nice to just not be busy for a little while? Wouldn't it be nice to just calmly and quietly be in the presence of the Lord? To just feel the presence of the Lord wrap his arms around us like a mother does her child? To just feel some rest for our souls? And what does this look like to be in the Lord's presence? Well, we know a few different things. One, it looks like being in church. And I don't just say this because we are in church. You know, there are many people who say they experience God in many different ways, and they usually mention that in contrast to church. You know, I, I go fishing, I experience God in nature. Uh, I go hunting, I experience God in nature. I go bird watching, I experience God in nature. I hear that one a lot, if you can't tell, by me bringing it up. And so they say, the only time I can go experience God in nature for some reason is 1030 on a Sunday. Just haven't understood that one. Many people say, oh, I can't wait to be in heaven. I've got some friends who say things like this. They say, I'll be fine with heaven as long as I can fish all day. I'm like, you fish all day now. What are you, what are you talking about? You think it's going to be, what are you, what's going on here? You know, I don't know about the church. I don't want to, they, we just sing. I'm not a big singer. I don't like singing in groups. It's kind of weird, don't you think? You know, and, and they're always praying and you have to, you never know when to say amen or when to stand up or when to sit down. And, and you just, and all those people, I'm not a big people person. I hear that one a lot too. You know, if you don't like people, you don't like worship, and you don't like being in the presence of a bunch of Christians, you're not going to like heaven a whole lot at all. You're not going to like heaven a whole lot at all because that is the place where you're going to be in the presence of the Lord. And guess what? So is everyone else who has believed on the name of Jesus Christ. But we also see the Lord's presence in our personal devotions. You know, we don't just worship in a church building. You know, what's great about worshiping in the church together is that you, for the most part, most of us, don't get to pick the songs. We don't get to pick who prays or what they pray. We don't get to pick the passage that's read or preached on or how it's presented that morning. You know why that's good? Because sometimes you need to experience something outside of your comfort zone. And that's one of the great things about coming together to worship together. It's not just that we need each other, which is true. It's that we need each other in our diversity, we need the fact that we're going to have to sing some songs that are not our favorites. Uh, we're going to have to hear some prayers that aren't about me and my family. Uh, we're going to have to hear some preaching that, you know what, some weeks it's not going to hit you the same way it does the next week. And, and since y'all go to this church, it may not hit you for several weeks before you finally get one that you feel maybe the Spirit of God moved in you to not listen to the preacher and hear something really good. I don't know. But we need our personal devotions as well because that's the time where you do get to sing the songs that you love, that you grew up with in your childhood. That's where you get to read scripture, your favorite books of the Bible, even the ones we don't hear preached from very often on a Sunday. And you get to hear, uh, read those books of the Bible that don't always make the best sermons but are still very useful to read. You know, it's good to read Chronicles. You may not enjoy it, but it's good to read Chronicles. So we need our personal devotions in which we study the Word of God when we pray about those needs that are most pressing on our lives and to sing those songs that touch our hearts the most. And we also need family worship. I mean, if you're, if you're, if you're on your own, you can do this by yourself. If, if you have friends, you can do this with them. But it's also what you do with your spouse and with your kids is spending time in worship, not just in the church, not just in your prayer closet, but with your family, singing with them, 
praying with them, reading the Bible with them. That's all it takes. Simple. Sing one song with the recording, pray one prayer all together, read a passage of scripture. At, at the minimum, that's all you have to do. That's how we feel the presence of the Lord until he returns. In the worship that we have together as a church, in the worship we have on our own with Christ and his spirit, and the worship that we have with our families and our friends and our community. But here is a warning, one that we should all hear very clearly. Again, I'll read from C.S. Lewis. Whenever we find that our religious life is making us feel that we are good, above all, that we are better than someone else, I think we may be sure that we are being acted on, not by God, but by the devil. The real test of being in the presence of God is that you either forget about yourself altogether or see yourself as a small, dirty object, and it is better to forget about yourself altogether. Lest the very things you do to feel the presence of the Lord in this life become the things that lead you away from him, let us do it not in a spirit of pride for which we feel that we are better than others or that we are better than we truly are, but let us do it with the spirit of humility such that we forget ourselves altogether and simply rest in the presence of the Lord. And finally, in verse 3, O Israel, hope in the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. If we hope in the Lord, he can make us humble people who rest in his presence. Uh, John Stott uh, said this, Pride is your greatest enemy. Humility is your greatest friend. For just as pride is the root of all sin, so humility is the root, mother, nurse, foundation, and bond of all virtue, as John Christostrom would say. And so in the same way that pride can infect and damage every sin that we make and make it worse, and every good thing we do and make it bad, so humility can transform from the beginning our lives, that we have lives that are full of faith, full of hope, full of love, full of joy and every other virtue, full of charity and civil love for our neighbor. One final C.S. Lewis quote, if you'll let me. In God, you come up against something which is in every respect immeasurably superior to yourself. Unless you know God as that, and therefore know yourself as nothing in comparison, you do not know God at all. As long as you are proud, you cannot know God. A proud man is always looking down on things and people. And of course, as long as you are looking down, you cannot see something that is above you. May we not be people who, in the face of God, are ready because of the pride of our hearts and the pride of our lives to stand before him and make ourselves more superior to him. But when we come in contact with him, may we truly fall on our knees with humility and respect. And this is something that we need help with. We cannot just simply do this on our own. So here's three things you can do, and they'll be brief. Pray for humility. It really does, in some sense, take a supernatural act for humility to grow in our lives. You can't just force it. In fact, if you, I think if you are trying to be humble, according to the flesh, according to your own abilities, you will probably find yourself 
taking pride in your humility, which is an ironic thing, but it's also a thing that very well happens. We all know people that, that everyone thought, well, I'm not going to get into that. So Martin Luther said, God created the world out of nothing, and as long as we are nothing, he can make something out of us. We are creatures created in God's image, but we depend entirely on him for our existence. And so we must, just by virtue of that, be humble. And we must humble ourselves, making ourselves nothing. Humility isn't thinking less of ourselves. It's just thinking of ourselves less. Okay, that was the last C.S. Lewis quote. It just came to mind, okay? The second thing we ought to do is put others first. See, the key to getting pride out of us and humility in us is to stop prioritizing ourselves, stop prioritizing our opinions, our needs, our wants, our desires, and start prioritizing the needs, the thoughts, the desires of others, such that in the church this looks like giving up the very things for which bring us the most joy if it means bringing more joy to the people in the other pew. And finally this, focus on Christ. Focus on Christ. Christ is surely the greatest example of humility that we have. You know, in Christ we have the omnipotent ruler of the universe who created all things, yet in him he humbled himself and took on the form of a servant and then humbled himself even further to the point of death, even death on a cross. And so in Jesus Christ, we have the ultimate example of humility, and we have the saving power that can transform our lives and actually allow us to be humble. This morning, I hope that you hear the good news, that no matter how bad the pride in our own hearts may be, the humility of our Savior is so much greater. And by his victory, we might be made humble too. Let's pray.